So I have a note here. Do you think some people have a natural facility for jhanas and others less so? Or would you say that it's just a matter of creating the right conditions? Certainly people have different abilities to concentrate. There are people who are quite good at multitasking, and they seem to have more difficulty entering the jhanas. Uh, There are some people who can't multitask at all, (laughs) and the jhanas come easily for me. There are certain mental problems such as ADD, attention deficit disorder, that can make it difficult to enter the jhanas. Uh, But even that doesn't seem to be an absolute barrier, just like multitasking skill doesn't seem to be an absolute barrier. just makes it more difficult. There are certain things, such as schizophrenia, that make it quite difficult. So I would say, yes, some people have an easier time and some people have a more difficult time. Uh, The barrier that most people face is that when they get quiet, stuff comes up that they have to deal with, unresolved issues. That's the most common thing that comes up. But there can be other things as well. Um, It takes a fair amount of practice to be able to just generate the concentration necessary for access concentration. So someone who's quite new to practice, even though they may have quite a bit of skill in concentration, it may seem as though, yeah, the jhanas just aren't happening for them. So I I wouldn't say that necessarily everyone can get there, and I would say that some people find it easier than others. And as for trying to guess whether an individual will do, will find the jhanas easily or difficult, I have no clue. They just have to try it and see. And another question about uh, the fifth of the daily reflections, the I am born of my karma. Uh, I mentioned when I was talking about them that the Buddha's teachings on karma are about paying attention to what you're about to do so that the results you get in the future are good. In other words, do the wholesome stuff to get the good results. It's not about trying to understand the why bad things happen to good people or anything like that. And yet there's that phrase, I'm born of my karma. That seems like... <laughs> stuff coming from the past. I would say there are two things here. One, the more literal thing is that, yes, in the suttas you do find things where the Buddha is explaining that this bad thing that's happening to this good person was because in their previous life they did such and such and such. But remember, at times the Buddha is talking to people that really don't have all that deep an understanding. They're still struggling to come to terms with the fact that the world is lawful. Uh, They're still struggling to get over believing that the gods are causing everything or 
Brahmins and ascetics of great power or things happen by chance. So I think that's a skillful means for people working at that level. I think at a deeper level, who you are today is definitely dependent upon the actions you've done in the past. All right? I mean, right now you're a yogi on a retreat. That's due to the actions of coming on a retreat. All right? So that's part of what's there is to look and see that sometimes it's pretty obvious that something you did in the past has made you who you are today. The Buddha also many times says, don't try and figure out the threads of karma. You will either go mad or it will lead to great vexation. Right? It's just far too complex for us to try and figure out. So... Basically, I'm going to go back to my original statement. Don't use the teachings on karma in any way to try and figure out why something bad happened to you with the thing of unless it's really obvious, okay? But if you just find yourself with stuff happening and that's what's going on, then that's it. The Buddha said that there were eight causes for things to arise And the eighth one was karma. But there was all sorts of other things as well that were completely outside your control. You know, earthquakes are mentioned, uh, war is mentioned, uh, kings, robbers. I think in this culture we'd have to say bad parenting. Uh, There's a lot of things that, yeah, you just didn't have anything to do with it, but it has determined your makeup. So use the teachings on karma to pay attention to what you're about to do rather than trying to explain the present via the past. But do learn from the past. Don't make the same mistakes over and over again. Okay. Oh, and I made the copies of the essence of the jhanas and the Uh, details of the Anapanasati Sutta for those who raised their hands last night and they're out in the window along with the other copy I made for those who haven't picked them up yet. Continuing now with the four foundations of mindfulness. The second foundation only has the one practice of basically knowing your Vedana, knowing whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and then dividing it into those with flesh and without flesh, whatever that means. The third foundation is contemplation of citta. Citta is usually translated as mind, more accurately translated as heart-mind. Pali, like many Asian languages, doesn't distinguish between thoughts and emotions. They are both mental activity... And the citta is the organ that generates the mental activity, the thoughts and the emotions. If you were counting, when we did the parts of the body, there were 31 parts that were mentioned. Sometimes you hear of the 32 parts of the body. The missing part, to take it from 31 to 32, the part that wasn't mentioned in the list I read out was the brain. 
At the time of the Buddha, the brain was considered the marrow of the skull. Sometimes you would get extra marrow in your skull and it would leak out your nose. So when you were blowing your nose, you were literally blowing your brains out. But uh, So the organ that did the thinking and the emoting was the heart. And so when you see chitta, recognize that this is just basically talking about the organ that produces the mental activity. But here in the third foundation, chitta could better be translated as mind states. And how does one abide contemplating mind states as mind states? Here one understands a mind affected by lust as a mind affected by lust, and a mind unaffected by lust as a mind unaffected by lust. What understands a mind affected by hate is a mind affected by hate, and a mind unaffected by hate is a mind unaffected by hate. What understands mind affected by delusion is mind affected by delusion, and mind unaffected by delusion is mind unaffected by delusion. One understands contracted mind is contracted, and distracted mind is distracted. One understands exalted mind is exalted, and unexalted mind is unexalted. One understands surpassed mind is surpassed and unsurpassed mind is unsurpassed. Concentrated as concentrated, unconcentrated as unconcentrated, liberated as liberated, unliberated as unliberated. So basically this means you know your state of mind. And what's given is not an exhaustive list, it's just examples. So the first three are greed, hatred, and delusion. So to know whether those are present or not. And then contracted mind and distracted mind. The commentaries say a contracted mind is one that's contracted with sloth and torpor, and a distracted mind is one that's distracted with restlessness and worry. Yeah, okay. But it could also be contracted in that it's contracted around some idea or something and really can't see what's going on. Uh Exalted, surpassed, and concentrated, the commentaries say, refer to the jhanas. I just take them as examples. And liberated, the commentaries say liberated from the hindrances. And since it comes last in the list, I'd say, know whether you're fully enlightened or not. That one's probably easy to keep track of. Now, that's all you do is you simply know your state of mind. There's nothing further than that. How can you see? Right. Yeah. So the deluded is a really difficult one because, of course, we believe we're not deluded. We believe all of our stuff as well. Uh, there's a phenomenon known as yogi mind. It's, it's a really good example of deluded mind. You're on a retreat, and you get some idea. Uh, it may be something like, you know, the cooks really could make the food a lot better if they would, or something like that. And so you write a note to the cooks and tell them, you know, how to do their job. Or the showers would be a lot more usable if they would just... And so you write a note to maintenance telling them to rebuild the showers while you're on retreat. Uh, or 
you think somebody has it in for you. I mean, they let go of the door and, and you know, it came back in your face and, you know, they, they, must, they must really hate you and, and so you're building all this stuff up. Because you don't have any reality to check things out, you get some idea and you run with it. Now, this is an example of deluded mind. The most famous, outrageous yogi mind experience that I know of at Cloud Mountain Retreat Center, they did a year-long retreat one time. And the yogi mind got pretty serious during that retreat. And the director kept trying to fulfill the request until he got a note that read, Please call the airport and ask them to tell the pilots to stop flying over Cloud Mountain. They're disturbing my meditation. (laughs) At that point, he realized this is all just yogi mind. And he stopped trying to keep up with their ridiculous things. So when you're on retreat and you get some idea about how things could be fixed or how somebody's relating to you or something like that, you might think to yourself, Is this yogi mind? And just try and check it out. This checking in to see is this yogi mind when you get some idea like that can actually be helpful for learning how to distinguish when you're deluded. Because you get the sense that, okay, this might not really be accurate. I mean, it feels accurate and, and, you know, it would definitely make things better or whatever. But it's like, okay, it's an idea that I haven't really checked out with reality. Is it possible to check this out with reality? The idea of, you know, reworking the showers and making it better, yeah, okay, maybe it really would make things better. But is it practical to rebuild the showers during a retreat? Well, no, right? So when you have ideas, check it out with reality. Sort of see, does it match what's going on? Don't get stuck in just the first flush of the idea. Some part of it may be actually beneficial and connect with reality, but check it out in a broader sense. That's one way to try and help determine whether you're being deluded. When you're not on retreat, hopefully you have your noble friends and noble conversations with whom you can bounce your ideas and get their feedback. And if your friends are indeed noble and you give them some deluded idea, they'll say, that sounds rather deluded to me, or something like that. So checking in with with others is a really good way. Because on our own, yeah, we'll come up with all sorts of fantasies that we think are real. So basically this is just to know your state of mind. There's nothing really further to do. Now, this is, again, not a really useful practice for doing during a meditation period. I mean, you come in and sit down and go, not concentrated. Yep, still not concentrated. Yeah, no more. I mean, that's... But it is a good thing. Maybe you should come in and sit down and check out your state of mind. Well, I'm feeling a little distracted, or I'm feeling sleepy, or I'm feeling over-energized, or I'm feeling quite alert, or I'm feeling very mindful, or I'm feeling pretty concentrated from just having coming in from doing my yogi job or or whatever. So you might check out your state of mind 
and you might check out your state of mind periodically through the day. Now, of course, one does this internally, externally, both internally and externally. The external, unless, of course, you have the supernormal power of knowing the minds of others, is a bit more difficult, but you can infer it. If you encounter someone who's making loud noises, shaking their finger, turning red in their face, you might go, hmm, angry mind here, right? So it is possible at times to know the minds of others. And one abides contemplating arising factors and one abides contemplating vanishing factors, or both arising and vanishing factors. When your state of mind changes, it would be good to notice that your state of mind is changing, right? You're all nice and peaceful, and somebody says something to you, and now you're angry, all right? Notice the state of mind has changed. So just basically checking in on a periodic basis to know what your state of mind is and then seeing if you can notice the changes when that happens is basically all that this practice is about. Any questions? Yes. Internally is to distinguish what's going on in yourself. Externally is to distinguish what's going on in someone else. Internally and externally is to recognize, oh, yeah, they get angry just like I get angry, to see the commonality. The arising and vanishing, things arise, things vanish. But there's a lot of arising and vanishing going on, and the arising of one thing may lead to the vanishing of another, etc. So it's to see it in isolation to get it clear, and then to see it in a larger context. Anything else on the third foundation? Okay. Moving right along to the fourth foundation. There's only this one practice for the third foundation, knowing your state of mind. This is contemplation of dharmas. Dharma is a word that has different meanings in different contexts. Uh, When you see it with a capital D and singular, that generally means the teachings of the Buddha or the truth with a capital T. When you see it with a little d and plural, then that's probably better translated as phenomena, although you see it quite frequently translated as mind objects, which is how it is here. But I think phenomena is actually a better translation. Now, of course, remember the capital D and the little d, (laughs) they didn't have that in Pali because it was an oral language. This is just something the translator is trying to do to help you out. But they did have plural and singular. So, how does one abide contemplating phenomena as phenomena? Here one abides contemplating phenomena as phenomena with respect to the five hindrances. And how does one abide contemplating phenomena as phenomena with respect to the five hindrances? Here, there being sensual desire in one, one understands there is sensual desire in me. Or there being no sensual desire in one, one understands there is no sensual desire in me. And one also understands how there comes to be the arising of the unarisen sensual desire and how there comes to be the abandoning of the arisen sensual desire, 
and how there comes to be the future non-arising of the abandoned sensual desire. If there is ill will, if there is sloth and torpor, if there is restlessness and worry, if there is doubt, one understands there's a hindrance. Or there being no hindrance, one understands there's no hindrance. And one understands how there comes to be the arising of an unarisen hindrance, and how there comes to be the abandoning of an arisen hindrance, and how there comes to be the future non-arising of the abandoned hindrance. Okay, so five parts for each of the five hindrances. To know whether the hindrance is present or not. And if it's present, how did you get yourself into this mess? How can you get yourself out of the mess? And how can you avoid getting into the mess in the future? All right. Uh, the getting yourself out and avoid getting caught in the future is the same as the first two of the four great efforts to make an unwholesome state that has arisen go away and then to prevent an unwholesome state that has not yet arisen from arising. So basically, it's dealing with the hindrances. Now, the practice of the third foundation of mindfulness, knowing your state of mind, and you discover that you have greed or covetousness or sense desire in your mind, that's the third foundation. And then you switch to the fourth foundation to go, yeah, this is a hindrance. And then see if you can figure out how you got there, make it go away, and not get caught again. So there's some interacting back and forth between the third and the fourth of the foundations. And one does it internally, externally, arising, ceasing, etc. Any questions on the hindrances as a practice of mindfulness? Yes, you don't have to be successful in figuring it out, but you should at least attempt to figure it out, right? So if you find that restlessness has arisen, okay, you might think, did I have a cup of coffee? Uh, Did I, you know, just do some major activity that got me stirred up? Or, you know, I mean, you might reflect back on, is there anything I can obviously see? And if you can't obviously see something, then yes, you can move on to making it go away. It's going to be difficult to prevent it from arising in the same situation in the future since you don't understand the situation. But yeah, take a look, see if you can understand why and whether you can or cannot deal with it and get it to go away. Right. Okay, is it there? Is it not there? How did it get there? How can I make it go away? How can I prevent it from arising? And the same antidotes that you described with the hindrances, basically? Yeah, right. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap in the Buddha's teachings. I mean, he describes something from this perspective, and then he describes it from that perspective, and then he describes it from this perspective. Yeah, but it's just to help you deal with it.
Okay, moving right along. The next is the five aggregates, the five khandas. Uh, khanda is Pali, skanda is Sanskrit. Literally means heap or pile or mass or bundle, so a collection of stuff. Again, one abides contemplating phenomena as phenomena with respect to the five aggregates affected by clinging. Now, as I said, this is the Upadana Khandas, and the I think the original meaning was the five blazing masses of fuel, the five blazing aggregates, blazing with the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. Because the Pali actually says the five clinging aggregates, although it gets translated as the five aggregates affected by clinging. I think it's a pun. I think it's Upadana Kanda is a pun saying the five blazing aggregates as the main meaning, but having the sense of the five aggregates to which we cling. Part of this is to recognize that in the time of the Buddha, a fire clung to its source of fuel. You know, you can see that. A fire is just sort of right there stuck on the wood. It's burning. It sometimes jumps a little bit off, but it, it comes back, right? And so they were say, thinking that the fire clung to its fuel. So anyhow, <clears throat> we are to look at the world in terms of the aggregates, which are the things that we have a tendency to have these fires of greed, hatred, and delusion about, which results in our clinging. And how does one abide contemplating phenomena as phenomena with respect to these five aggregates? Here one understands, such is material form, such is its origin, such is its disappearance. Such are Vedana, such are their origin, such are their disappearance. Such is perception, such is its origin, such is its disappearance. Such are mental formations, such are their origin, such is their disappearance. Such is consciousness, such is its origin, such is its disappearance. So, <clears throat> the five aggregates are the body, the vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, perceptions, sanya, which is the identifying or naming of something, the mental activities, such as thoughts, emotions, memories, and consciousness. Basically, the mental activities is the catch-all. Anything that doesn't fit into one of the other baskets goes into mental activities. And then the other three mental ones of Vedana, perception, and consciousness are very specific. Consciousness is that which knows. For example, if you look at the Buddha statue up here, there's a bump on top of his head, right? So look really carefully at that bump on top of his head. Come on, stop taking notes. Look at the bump on the top of his head, all right? Really careful. Now become aware of what's in your peripheral vision. What's in your peripheral vision was there all along. 
you just weren't conscious of it because you were putting all your energy into looking at the bump on the top of the Buddha's head. Your consciousness was not aware of the objects. The objects were there, the light was striking your eye, but because your consciousness was all on the Buddha statue, you missed it until I directed your attention there. So this is what consciousness is. It's that which knows. It's the part of your brain that's actually processing the incoming signals from your senses. We get far more signals from our senses than we are able to attend to at any one time. Like right now, until I mention it, you're probably not aware of what's happening with your feet. You know, when I say feet, then suddenly, yeah, you're aware of the pressure or whatever's going on there. This is actually a good thing, since there is so much input. If we tried to process it all with our little puny pea brains, we'd be overwhelmed and wouldn't be able to attend to the important stuff. So we have learned to be conscious of what it is necessary to be conscious of in order to survive. If you didn't learn that, then you didn't survive and you didn't pass on your genes. I mean, it's pretty simple how it worked. So this knowing what's happening, this being aware, is what consciousness is about. So what the Buddha is saying is to pay attention to these five aggregates, these five heaps. This is who we are. We are a physical component and we are a mental component that is broken into four parts. Our reactions to sensory inputs, our perceptions or identifications of sensory inputs, our thoughts and emotions around the sensory inputs that we get, and our consciousness. These Vedana could be seen as increasing complexity. So a rock, I mean, these aggregates could be seen as increasing complexity. A rock has the aggregate of form, but it's not responding to its environment. It's probably not getting any sensory input or anything like that. So there's just that one aggregate. Most things that are alive have some rudimentary way to react to their environment. Plants seem to exhibit Vedana. They like sunlight, right? They grow towards the sunlight. Now, we don't want to get too anthropomorphic in saying that plants like sunlight, but they certainly respond positively to it. They've played music for plants, and they find that they like Beethoven and Bach better than they like acid rock, right? So there seems to be a rudimentary Vedana thing here, a responding towards or responding away from. Single-celled animals have the same sort of response. If you have some amoebas and you're looking at them through a microscope and you put some salt into the solution they're in, they're going to run from it. Put some food in, they're going to run towards it. As you get a more complex organism, it not only has the ability to respond to sensory inputs, it can identify them. Your dog knows the sound of the can opener, right? And it comes running to get its food, even if it's not dog food time. It it knows what's going on there, so it has this identification ability. And then as 
animals get far more complex, there seem to be some reasoning ability that's there, what we would call thinking, and all this would fall under um, mental formations, mental activities. And then if an animal is complex enough, there's self-awareness, which is one of the ways that the word consciousness is used in the suttas. So humans have self-awareness. It appears that dolphins, probably whales, chimpanzees, and maybe even ravens have self-awareness. They can tell that it's me. Um, Now, consciousness is interesting because it's a word that in the suttas gets used in at least four different ways. It's used to designate the sense consciousnesses, right? So when I had you looking at the top of the Buddha's head and then become aware of what was in your peripheral vision, this was an example of visual consciousness. Uh, Consciousness is sometimes used as a general term for mental activity, uh, the mind. In the sutta that I talked about where the king comes to see the Buddha, the Buddha says when your mind is concentrated, clear, sharp, etc., one understands this is my body made in material form, etc., and this is my consciousness, vijnana, which is bound up with it and supported by it. So the whole it's an umbrella term for all mental activity. Consciousness, it sometimes means whether you are conscious or unconscious, and at times it means uh, what we would call consciousness of a self or consciousness of this entity, aware of oneself. So you have to be careful in reading the suttas to figure out what's going on. The commentaries pretty much want to put all of consciousness into the six sense consciousnesses and ignore the other meanings, and the Abhidhamma does the same thing. There is one sutta that uses consciousness in all four different ways in the same short sutta, so it can be quite confusing. But in general, I think if you're looking at it as uh, either sense consciousness or looking at it as conscious versus unconscious or self-awareness versus not being able to be self-aware, you're probably going to be correct. But it's a tricky thing to try and figure out. So in the aggregates, the question sometimes comes up, well, why is it last if it's if when we get a sensory input, there's the body, the sense organ, and the external uh, sight object or sound object, and then consciousness. It would seem like consciousness should come first. Yeah, it would seem like that. I suspect that the khandas was a teaching that was existent when the Buddha came along, and he just co-opted it, tweaked it a bit for his own purposes. It may be, however, that as it developed, first there was just mind and consciousness, and then other bits got added in, and they got added in between the, there was just body and consciousness. And as other bits got added in, they got it added in between body and consciousness. So first Vedana, perhaps, and then perception, and then it was like mental activities to break it all out. But I don't really know about that. So, 
The idea of this particular practice is to be able to identify the physical component of your being, the vedna, the perceptions, your thoughts, emotions, and memories, and your consciousness. And furthermore, to notice the arising and the passing. It says here the origin and disappearance. So notice that things are changing. Your body changes somewhat slowly, but it does change. And your mind, well, that can change pretty quickly. The Vedana are changing very quickly. They're not sticking around much at all. Your ideas might stick around for quite some time. Uh, But just notice that all of this stuff is in flux. Notice the arising and passing. If you want to do this as a meditation practice, what I would suggest is getting concentrated and then opening up your senses, all of them, and simply notice anything that arises and anything that passes. You can keep your eyes closed. This will make it easier to get started. So what you'll notice sitting there in a concentrated mind state with your eyes closed is sounds arise and pass. Touch sensations, sensations in your body are arising and passing. Your breathing is arising and passing. And thoughts arise and pass. So you just sit there noticing them. Now you're noticing as opposed to noting. You don't try and go arising, passing. Right? You're just noticing that all of this is in flux. And you notice whatever arises and whatever passes. It's not if the bird starts singing, you've got to stay with it until it ceases. Right? So the bird starts singing, and then your nose starts itching, and then you need to adjust your back. And someone sneezes, that's an arising and passing. And now the bird stops singing, that's a passing. And your nose no longer itches, that's a passing. All right? So... Not stay with it until it, something that arises until it passes. Just notice any arisings and passings. Then the bell rings, arisings and passings there. You stand up, the passing of sitting, the arising of standing. You start walking, the passing of standing, the arising of walking. And you just then are noticing all the arisings and passings that are going on. As you're walking, your visual field is changing. So there's arisings and passings happening there. As you're doing your walking meditation, instead of paying attention to the physical sensations associated with walking or paying attention to the elements or paying attention to your breath, you're still paying attention to arisings and passings. When you go to eat, you're looking at your eating in terms of arisings and passings. You're filling your mind with awareness of arisings and passings until you come back and sit down again. And then you do your five things at the beginning of the sitting, generate some concentration. Once you're well concentrated, back to arisings and passings. It's like it's a full-time practice. You want to do it all the time. It's a slow-moving practice. I don't generally recommend it to people unless I'm teaching a month-long retreat. In a 10-day retreat, it'll just start getting going good when the retreat's over. But in a long retreat, it has a uh, chance to take you to some really deep spaces. And, of course, one does it internally, externally, rising, passing, etc. 
comments or questions? The, the arising and passing? Yeah, the arising and passing is a pretty major aspect of the Buddhist teachings. As I said, he said that it's better to spend one day noticing how phenomena arise and pass than to spend a century not noticing this. And there are many other places in the suttas that he indicates that the awareness of the impermanent nature or the awareness of the inconstant nature, the arising and passing nature of phenomena is extremely important. Uh, yes, I think there are some traditions that emphasize it pretty strongly. Uh, yeah, it sort of varies as to how much emphasis it gets amongst the traditions. But yeah, it's quite important. The so-called progress of insight, which is found in the Vasudhimaga, certainly emphasizes it quite strongly. And the Vasudhimaga is sort of the basis of what we know as Theravadan Buddhism. So yeah. Right, right. The fourth uh, of the aggregates is the word sankara, which was also the second in the dependent origination. I would still say the word concoctions is a a good translation of it. Uh, I mean, your memories and your thoughts and your emotions are your concoctions, right? So I think there's a similarity here. Uh, slightly different in that it's restricted to your mental activities as opposed to, I mean, this table is a sankara, but it's not the fourth aggregate. So, yeah, it's restricted to what it covers, but much the same meaning. And your other question? Right. So the uh, aggregates are often mentioned in relation to not-self, and it wasn't mentioned so much here. Well, as soon as the questions died down, I was going to talk about (laughs) the Majjhima Nikaya number 109, middle-length discourse 109, the greater discourse on the full moon night. Thus have I heard, on one occasion the Blessed One was living at Savati in the eastern park in the palace of Miagra's mother. And on that occasion, on the Upasath day of the 15th, on the full moon night, the Blessed One was seated in the open, surrounded by the Sangha of Bhikkhus. So on the new moon and the full moon, the Buddha and his monks would sit up all night meditating. Then a certain bhikkhu rose from his seat, arranged his upper robe on one shoulder, extended his hands in reverential salutation towards the Blessed One, and said to him, Venerable Sir, I would ask the Blessed One about a certain point. Sit on your own seat, bhikkhu, and ask what you like. So the bhikkhu sat down and asked the Blessed One, Are these not, Venerable Sir, the five aggregates affected by clinging? The five blazing aggregates. That is... Material form, Vedana, perception, mental activities, and consciousness. Yes, these are the five aggregates. 
Good, venerable sir. But, venerable sir, in what are these five aggregates rooted? These five aggregates are rooted in desire. The word that's used here is chanda. It's not craving. It's desire. You find in the suttas that sometimes desire is used as a synonym for craving, and this is one of those cases. Venerable sir, is the clinging the same as these five aggregates, or is it something different? Bhikkhu, that clinging is neither the same as these five aggregates, nor is it something apart from these five aggregates. It is desire and lust in regard to the five aggregates that there is clinging there. But, venerable sir, can there be diversity in the desire and lust regarding these aggregates? There can be. Here someone thinks, may my material form be thus in the future. May my feeling be thus in the future. May my perception be thus in the future. May my mental activities be thus in the future. May my consciousness be thus in the future. So there's diversity in that you can intend any one of these to be such. You're desiring that you experience pleasant taste with lunch, for example. That's a Vedana. But, venerable sir, in what way does the term aggregate apply? (laughs) Any kind of material form, whatever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, Far or near, this is the material form aggregate, and the same for each of the other aggregates. Past, present, future, internal, external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near. What is the cause and condition, venerable sir, for the manifestation of each of these aggregates? The four elements, bhikkhu, are the cause and condition for the manifestation of the material form aggregate. So the material form is composed of the four elements of earth, water, fire, and air. Contact is the cause and condition for the manifestation of the Vedana aggregate. We had that in the dependent origination. That Vedana is dependent on contact, which is dependent on the senses, etc. Contact is the cause and condition for the manifestation of the perception aggregate. Perception is not mentioned in dependent origination, but it also arises from contact. Contact is the cause and condition for the manifestation of the mental activities aggregate. There is some sort of sensory input, either internally or externally, that triggers your thoughts and emotions or your memories. And... Mind and body is the cause and condition for the manifestation of the consciousness aggregate. And we had this when we were looking at dependent origination. Venerable Sir, how does personality view come to be? Here, Bhikkhu, an untaught ordinary person who has no regard for noble ones and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dhamma, and who has no regard for true men and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dharma, regards material form as self, or self as possessed of material form, or material form as in self, or self as in material form, regards each of the other aggregates as either that being the self, or the self possessing it, 
or it's in the self, or the self is in that aggregate. So sometimes we think, I am my body. When you say, I'm sick, you've identified with the body. You don't say, my body is sick, right? I am sick. But we do speak of my arm, so now I possess the, the arm. Or I think of myself as sitting behind my windows, looking out, pulling all the levers. So myself is in my body. But Venerable Sir, how does personality view not come to be? A well-taught noble disciple doesn't make that mistake. Doesn't consider the self as or in or possessing these aggregates. Venerable Sir, what is the gratification? What is the danger? What is the escape in the case of material form? What is the gratification? What is the danger? What is the escape in the case of each of the other aggregates? Okay, so why do we like these aggregates? What's the gratification? And if we like them, is there a problem? Is there danger? And if there's danger, how do we get out? So, the pleasure and joy that arise dependent on an aggregate, this is the gratification in the case of that aggregate. All of these aggregates are impermanent, dukkha, and subject to change. This is the danger in the case of each of these aggregates. The removal of desire and lust, the abandonment of desire and lust for an aggregate, this is the escape in the case of that aggregate. So these aggregates can produce pleasure and joy. That's why we start clinging to them. Physical form, be it your own or your possessions, your Vedana, your perceptions, your mental activities, your consciousness. This provides pleasure and joy. The problem is that all of this stuff is impermanent. It's subject to change. None of it is going to provide you lasting satisfaction. If you get attached to it, it's going to be a bummer when it changes. The way out is the abandonment of desire and lust for each of these aggregates. It doesn't say that you can't enjoy the pleasure and joy that they produce. It's that you shouldn't do the craving thing around it. Venerable Sir, how does one know, how does one see, so that in regard to this body with its consciousness and all external signs, there is no eye-making, mind-making, and underlying tendency to conceit? Now, the underlying tendency to conceit means an underlying tendency to conceive of a self. It doesn't mean you're conceited. It means you conceive of a self. Bhikkhu, any kind of material form, whatever, whether past or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, one sees all material form as it actually is with proper wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. And for each of the other aggregates, one sees it with proper wisdom. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. 
Then in the mind of a certain bhikkhu this thought arose. So it seems that each of these aggregates is not self. What self, then, will actions done by the not-self affect? All right. If there's no self in here, who gets the results of the karma? All right. So, I mean, if there's not a self around, who's going to get the karmic resultants? Then the Blessed One, knowing in his mind the thought in the mind of that bhikkhu, addressed the bhikkhus thus. It is possible, bhikkhus, that some misguided man, obtuse and ignorant, with his mind dominated by craving, might think he can outstrip the teacher's dispensation thus. So it seems that each of these aggregates is not self. Then what self will actions done by the not self affect? Now, bhikkhus, you have been trained by me through interrogation on various occasions in regard to various things. That's a rather cryptic statement. Uh, there's a footnote here, and Bhikkhu Bodhi says that this same sutta occurs in the Samyutta Nikaya, but this particular statement is a bit different. We could read it and probably get the deeper meaning. Now, Bhikkhus, you have been trained by me through question and answers on various occasions in regard to dependent origination. In other words, don't look at the world in terms of selves. Look at the world in terms of dependently originated phenomena. That the, the obtuse and ignorance bhikkhu question about you know, what self is going to get the actions done by the not-self is still pres- uh, assuming that there is a self around. Okay, and the Buddha is saying, no, 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 no. There's just dependently originated phenomena rolling on. That the thinking of a self is foolishness. It's like asking, which way does the fire go when it goes out? I mean, we say a fire goes out. Well, which way does it go? Does it go up? Does it go down? North, south, east, west? Come on, which way does it go? Well, the question makes no sense because it's supposing that the fire is going someplace, right? Even though we're using the phrase. So the question that the bhikkhu is asking, what self is going to get the result of the actions done by the not-self, is still pre-assuming that there is a self there. It's just missing the whole point. It's this foolish is asking which way the fire goes when it goes out. The Buddha says, look at it in terms of dependently originated phenomena. Don't look at it in terms of existent things, essences. It's just these causes and conditions rolling on. Now, what follows is the pretty much the teaching from the second discourse, the discourse on not-self. Bhikkhus, what do you think? Is material form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, Venerable Sir. Is what is impermanent sukha or dukkha? Dukkha, Venerable Sir. Is what is impermanent dukkha and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. No, Venerable Sir. Well, now this raises the question, what kind of self do we really want? I mean... 
the self that we want is the one that's going to be everlastingly happy, right? The permanently happy self. I mean, you're not out there trying to find an impermanent self. I mean, that doesn't really qualify as the essence of who you are. And you don't want a self that's going to be permanently miserable. I mean, that's even worse, right? You want the permanently happy self. But your body, it's impermanent, and it changes, and it's not ultimately satisfying, so you don't want to identify that you are your body because, well, it's going to wind up old, sick, and dead. You don't want to be that. You want your lasting happiness. Well, your fadena, <laughs> no, that's not going to work. Your perceptions, well, do you ever misperceive something? Well, if that's yourself, does that mean yourself was not really a, a legitimate self? I mean, what, what's, no, you can't do the perceptions. Your thoughts, your emotions, your memories, well, your thoughts are pretty fleeting. They're certainly not permanent. Your emotions, they come and go, and some of them you like and some of them you don't like. That's not going to work. And your memories? Well, now, how accurate is your memories? I mean, sometimes we want to identify with our memories. That's who I really am. I'm, 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 the, I'm the head of all my memories here. But how accurate are your memories? I mean, how many people in this room can tell me all the telephone numbers they've ever had in their entire life? Uh, that's important information, and you forgot it already. So you don't want to identify with your memories. I mean, what if you forget something? That would, that would change who you are. And your consciousness. Now, that's the tricky one. This is the one we really want to identify with. I am my consciousness. I'm the one who knows what's going on. <clears throat> but when you go to sleep and you're not dreaming, you're not conscious. Your consciousness is gone. And then he comes back when you wake up. So where'd he go? Uh, and when he comes back, how does it know which body to come into? I mean, if that was really yourself and it went away, what if it woke up in a different body? I mean, and you were the one teaching yesterday, and now I'm the one that's teaching. I mean, I don't think you really want to identify with your consciousness. Therefore, bhikkhus, any, time, any kind of material form whatsoever, whether past, future, or present, etc., all material form should be seen as it is with proper wisdom. Thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself, and the same for each of these other aggregates. Seeing thus, a well-taught noble disciple becomes disenchanted with material form, disenchanted with Vedana, Disenchanted with perceptions, disenchanted with mental activities, disenchanted with consciousness. Now, the disenchantment, this should be thought of as ending the enchantment. You become disenchanted. Right now, we're under a spell. We are enchanted by our bodies, our thoughts, our mental activities, our consciousness. We're enchanted by all those cool things out there in the world that you can buy for only this much on sale, right? We are completely enchanted. We're under this spell. When we see things as they are, that they are impermanent, don't provide lasting satisfaction, subject to change, 
then we become disenchanted. We are out there looking at sandcastles out there or in here and thinking, this is the reality. This is the good stuff. This is going to last forever. And then the big wave comes along and washes it away and we get all upset. We need to become disenchanted. Now, if you're at the beach building a sandcastle, you are not enchanted into thinking this is going to be a magnificent structure you take home in the boot of your car, right? You're not enchanted by the sandcastle. That's what we need to do for everything, gain this disenchantment. Being disenchanted, one becomes dispassionate. Now, this word dispassionate, this is a translation of the Pali word viraga, V meaning not. <clears throat> Raga has the sense of coloring something. Like you see a wall on which graffiti has been written, then it's been ragged, right? Uh, a painting, there's raga happening. So the dispassion that's being talked about is to get your mind in a state where it's not being colored by the objects, being colored in that you are thinking that things have features that aren't really there. You're able to see clearly. So removing the coloring of things. Through dispassion, one's mind is liberated. When one's mind is liberated, there comes the knowledge. It is liberated. One understands birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, What had to be done has been done. There's no more coming to any state of being. This is the statement that everyone winds up making when they arrive at full awakening, at total enlightenment. This is what the Blessed One said. The bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. Now, while this discourse was being spoken, through not clinging, the minds of 60 bhikkhus were liberated from the taints. Uh, I guess the Buddha had better delivery than I. (laughs) So the key points are that these aggregates are what make up the universe, right? There's materiality, and there are four aggregates of mental functioning, the Vedna, the perceptions, the mental activities, and consciousness. They provide us with pleasure and joy. The pleasure and joy causes us to crave and cling to them. However, they are things that are subject to changing. And because they change, then we get upset. We don't experience the ultimate satisfaction we were looking for. We experience them as a bummer. And the way out is to see them as they really are, to see their impermanent ultimately unsatisfying nature, such that we break the spell, we're no longer enchanted by them, and we can then not have have that spell coloring our understanding of the world, and we can let go and be liberated. So any questions on this sutta or further questions on the aggregates? That was a long answer to your question about the (laughs) not-self. Um, 
yeah, you can't really notice the consciousness passing away. <laughs> I mean, you're not conscious that it's gone because <laughs> you're not conscious. Uh, your consciousness disappears in sleep. It disappears if you're knocked over the head. But it also seems to flit around from one thing to another. Right now, you're conscious of the sound of my voice, but you're not particularly conscious of what's going on with your feet until I say the word feet. So your consciousness, although it has the capacity to have many different objects, it's pretty much picking one object at a time and jumping around a lot. You might want to say, well, yeah, okay, but still, it's there. But I think sleep and you know being knocked over the head are the only times where it's really going to go away. Well, when you die, but... You're not going to be paying attention then. It's the most difficult one. Yeah, it's definitely harder to work with consciousness. Um, what's required is to investigate the nature of consciousness and see that it is changing and that at times it does go away and have a deep enough understanding of it so that you don't start clinging to it. You, in other words, become disenchanted with it. The best way to do that is to investigate the sense of self. One thing that happens is that the selfing comes and goes a lot more often than the consciousness. We have to think ourselves up on a regular basis or emote ourselves up. And this comes and goes. So a practice you can do off the cushion is to try and notice throughout the day when you generate a sense of self. So like when I said, you can sign up for your next interview. Up comes the sense of self. I've got to get my good spot, right? So... Pay attention during the day and watch the selfing coming and going. If you do this, you begin to get a sense that you're actually operating a fair amount of time without any sense of self. That the self seems to be something we keep adding in. That it's not there all the time. And that the self that we add in seems to flit from one aggregate to another. That at times it's the consciousness... At other times, it's our emotions. At other times, it's our vedana. And at times, it's the body. So by watching how the self comes and goes, we can see that, oh, yeah, it's really not just my consciousness. So even though the consciousness was around all day long, the self was coming and going, and it was identifying with other things. So that may be helpful. The really... The really tricky bit, but very interesting bit, is if you can get to the place where you're just noticing that things are being done without identifying with it. That your hand is reaching for the fork, that, that a hand is reaching for the fork, loading it up and bringing food to the mouth without identifying that it's my hand or something like that. Basically what we could say is... We've got the universe here, right? And the universe pokes up an eyeball, starts looking around. Actually, I guess there's two eyeballs. It's not just 
electromagnetic radiation, this sensing thing can sense. It can sense sound waves and smell waves, and right? So you got this sensing device that's appeared. It's just a part of the universe. It's not separate from the universe. And furthermore, it's mobile. It can move around on the surface of the universe, right? So you got this mobile sensing device sensing the universe and also has the ability to sense itself, right? And when it senses itself, it goes, oh, it's me. It thinks that there is an entity in here without recognizing it's just a mobile sensing device roaming around on the surface of the universe, that it's no... It's not separate from the universe. It's just a piece of the universe. But we somehow want to think of ourselves as a separate, self-contained entity here that is, you know, using the universe, living in the universe, as opposed to if we're just a piece of the universe. We're not separate from it at all. I mentioned that you need the 14 and a half pounds per square inch of atmospheric pressure holding you together right here. You're not independent of that. If that disappears, you won't suffocate. It'll actually be a lot more painful. I mean, your body just will start exploding. Right? So you are dependent on the air pressure. You think that where your sense of touch ends, that's the end of you. But no, you've got to have this air pressure. There's lots of other bits and pieces that are you. I mean, you are dependent on the food that you ate. You're dependent upon the cook fixing the food. You're dependent upon somebody going shopping and getting the food. You're dependent upon the farmer growing the food. You're dependent upon the food growing there because it got enough water and sunshine and not too much of either. And I mean, this just goes on and on and on. You're not independent of any of this stuff. The, we have the mistaken notion that this sense of self is accurate in that I'm an independent agent wandering around on the surface of the universe. But no, you're just a piece of the universe wandering around on the surface of the universe. Other questions on the aggregates? It, the, the consciousness interpretations for the aggregates does seem to vary. Uh, frequently, probably most frequently, it seems to be the six sense consciousnesses. But other times it seems to be the, the consciousness that there is an entity here. And sometimes it's consciousness as uh, a, a more general thing, the, the, that which knows uh, it, it's not consistent. This is one of the problems that I- exists in the Abhidhamma. The Buddha wasn't consistent. He'd say one thing to one person because he thought it could help him get him out of dukkha, and he would say something else that was actually inconsistent with that to someone else because he thought it could help them get out of dukkha. So the Abhidhamma comes along and tries to make everything consistent, but it's not there. So in so doing, they pretty much relegate consciousness to just the sixth sense consciousnesses because that probably occurs more often than anything else. But, no, you've got to really 
understand who the Buddha was talking to, what their spiritual background was, what their level of development was in terms of the, the Buddhist path as to, to figure out how he was using these terms. Right. Don't say arising or passing. Yeah. So I found that challenging. Can you give suggestions about how to not do that? Or is that something that fades as you do it more and more? Yeah. Uh, it's really a, just about a noticing. It's think of directing your attention, and you want to direct it to whatever is arising and passing. And your your attention is just on a swivel, okay? It's not locking into anything, right? When you note it, there's a, there's a tendency to sort of lock in for a moment, and and you don't want to do any locking in. The reason for not noting is the noting is going to slow you down. And you want to you want to be able to see that the arising and passing is happening with great rapidity. It's going on all the time. And even not noting, once it really kicks in, you realize you can't possibly keep up with all the arisings and passings that are happening. So rather than slow yourself down at the beginning by trying to note it, just notice the arisings and passings. One right after the other. Yeah, right? So you don't try to necessarily distinguish that? You just notice there was a... You notice there was a rising and you notice there was a passing. Yeah, but don't go rising, passing. <laughs> just look at it in terms of seeing a rising, passing. <clears throat> Imagine going into a store and what you want to notice is not the objects, but the price of the objects. Not just all of the prices. You want to notice when the price ends in nine. What percentage of the objects in the store have a price that ends in nine? Right? And so you're just wandering around and you're looking for nines. Right? You're not so much paying attention to the object or even the actual price. Right? But you're really keyed in to prices that end in nines. This is what it's like with the arising and passing, only it's not prices that end with nines, it's that something's arising or that something is passing. And yeah, it, may, it, it goes really fast. Once you really get into it, you start seeing it's the whole universe is sort of vibrating with risings and passings. Can you mix the practices up, particularly if you go for a walk? I'd say don't do a lot of switching around. It might be helpful when you set out on your walk to think, okay, I'm going to look for impermanence. And just, you know, make that be what you look for. Uh, Of course, mixing them around and, and being in the present moment is far, far superior to being lost. So, uh I would just say that it would probably go a bit easier if you pick a practice and work with it.
One thing that was suggested to me by a man named Pascal Auclair, who's from uh, Quebec, he suggested a practice working with the aggregates when going for a walk. And this works particularly well if you're walking down a road where there are telephone poles set up. And as you get to the first pole, you then start noticing the aggregate of form, your own body, the objects around you. And you do that until you get to the next telephone pole. And then you switch to noticing Vedana. Whatever you're experiencing, just notice the Vedana that's happening. And when you get to the next telephone pole, start noticing perception, how you're naming everything that's coming in through your senses. And the next one, start noticing your thoughts and emotions, memories associated with what you're experiencing. And then just try and rest in your consciousness. You know, just be there with the mind seeing things or hearing things or the touch sensations as you're walking till you get to the next telephone pole. Then back to the body and just keep repeating. It helps to have some <clears throat> regular thing that you can, you know, will trigger you to switch to the next aggregate. But that's actually a very good way of using the aggregates when going for a walk. Uh, if you're going across the field here, I don't know, you have to figure some other way to sort of trigger your changes, but you can use that as well. And that the switching periodically seems to help with the sort of getting bored and wandering off thing. No, a, a, well, okay, so the first thing, the word anicca is usually translated as impermanence. Tanasaro Bhikkhu translated as inconstancy, which I think is actually a better translation, that things are not constant. And so the arising and passing is to get you to see the inconstant nature of things. One of the Effects of noticing the arising and passing, the inconstant nature of the universe, is to see that things are impermanent, right? But it's, that's only one of the aspects. To see that they're changing is also important as well. And to see their changeability, I think, is what's meant by Anicca. The translation of impermanence is eh, not that great. Anything else? Of course, I know that the chocolate and the shoes and whatever that they would trick away the passion. Of course, I know it's not going to cause me lasting happiness. doesn't mean I don't want it. Right. If the wanting is not going to involve you getting upset if you don't get it, there's no problem. If you're enjoying something and it ends and it doesn't 
upset you that it ended, there's no problem. Oh yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, we Right. Very definitely. That's why we're unenlightened beings. <laughs> yeah. The idea is to keep investigating it. Keep seeing what's out there. I mean, this is the method that the Buddha gave, was to just keep looking at reality and understanding on deeper, deeper levels. And hopefully, over time, you're not out there trying to bring sandcastles home in the boot of your car. So, But yeah, it's a slow process. And even when you get the intellectual understanding, yeah, we're still out there making stupid mistakes, looking for stuff that's not going to bring lasting happiness. And sometimes you're there, and you're busy working on something, and you know this is not going to bring me lasting happiness, and you're still putting your energy into it. Yeah, we are weird creatures. Why would we ever do something that we know isn't going to really be to our benefit? And yet we're doing stuff like that over and over again. Not exactly the brightest thing around, but it's... Hearing it, yeah, and if you're fine with them, that's it. There's no problem. It, it, this change takes place not from an intellectual understanding. It's it's got to be at a deeper gut level. I came to find insight as the understood experience. So basically there has to be enough of an experience of chasing after things that don't provide ultimate satisfaction and then experiencing that they don't provide ultimate satisfaction that you stop chasing that stuff. But if, the, if it not providing the ultimate satisfaction isn't a problem then there's no problem. 